and welcome on The Barricades. This is a podcast produced by Eastern European journalists and academics. I am your host, Maria Cernat, and unfortunately today, due to some health issues, the co-host of the show, Boyan Stanislavski, was not able to be here with us, but we have for you a special guest. His name is Vitalia Sprânciană. Vitalia Sprânciană is known both in Moldova, in Romania, and I dare say in Eastern Europe as a very serious, devoted, and committed activist who is the founder of a website and the media platform called Platforma, where he publishes a lot of articles that are uh, very well documented from a critical perspective and offers um, detailed and complex analysis of things happening in Moldova. He advocates for occupying public spaces and um, giving those spaces a new meaning and offering the citizens of Chisinau a place where they can relate other than consumers and um Consumers, basically, because this is the, the public space was privatized and there are rarely places, public places where we can relate as citizens, not as consumers. So thank you, Vitalia, for coming to the show. Thank you for having me. And now Moldova, a very small country that now has around 2 million citizens, became the center and the focus of international media attention, but in a negative way, in the sense that due to the geopolitical context and the war in Ukraine, Moldova is caught uh, in this very, very tense international uh, environment uh, between a Ukraine that wants to help you, Moldova solve the problem with a strap of, of land called Transnistria that is currently dominated by former um, <clears throat> USSR army that stayed there after the Soviet Union collapsed in the 90s and is a twilight zone. Nobody knows much about it, but we know that the Russians have still their military equipment. And uh, between Russia that may in the worst case scenario, take Odessa and reach uh, Transnistria. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, its citizens desire to join the EU and become member of the um, uh, European Union. And these are currently the, the trends. Now in Moldova, um, were held elections after a series of very tense political uh, turmoil where you had uh, people resigning, then coming again to power. You had a very, very um, famous, or should I say infamous scandal of 1 billion euros being stolen, which for a country small, as small as Moldova was a catastrophe. But from the, for the time being, you had a president, Maya Sandu, that is um, highly praised by the international community, especially by the Western powers. Let us remember then that when Joe Biden visited Poland, he referred to Maya Sandu with very uh, kind words. And... Uh, 
you had the Prime Minister Natalia Gavrilica that was also a member of this team of this uh, new type of leaders that were pro-Western, pro-democracy, pro-transparency, and all the values that we kept hearing ever since the Soviet Union fell. But I think it was more than a month ago, Natalia Gavrilica, in a very sudden move, was asked to resign or she resigned. She left the office of Prime Minister of Moldova And I say it was sudden and unexpected because the way the media reflected it was very bizarre in the sense that everybody said, thank you, Natalia, you were great. Um, Thank you for what you did. But if she was so great, why did she leave? (laughs) Yeah, that was the question that everyone was asking uh, in the aftermath of uh, her uh, let's put it resignation uh, when she said that she was leaving the, the 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 prime ministership and she said that basically we are in the middle of uh, a great moment historical moment and she quit there was um, a lot of uh, laudations i would say like a lot of um, uh, it was a f- how to put it, a, a, a stream of uh, appraisals and uh, people saying that she was the best and so on and so forth. So everyone was asking like if she is and she was really so good, like why do you change her? So there were a lot of speculations. Of course, the, uh, the fact that the ruling party, uh, the uh, Action and Solidarity Party is not very transparent about its internal processes and internal discussions and conflicts uh, that doesn't help so um, i think natalia gavrilica in a way fell victim to several processes one is like various internal fights within the ruling uh, solidarity and uh, action party Uh, it's Mm -hmm. really uh, almost a well-known secret in Kishinev that everybody knows that uh, there are several groups that uh, fight for power within the party, uh, that fight for control of various resources, and uh, they want to position themselves uh, in order to get better access to the president, who is like the the leader of the party. So. They were saying that Natalia Gavrilica basically had a conflict with uh, some of her ministers, especially with the Minister of uh, Infrastructure and, uh, and Energy, Andrei Spunu. So basically, in a way, both her and Spunu were gone after her resignation. So in a way, she felt like one of the things is probably we have to take into account the internal struggle. So the others maybe it's also this fatigue, I would say, and uh, it's this moment when the party, the ruling party, wants to position itself better for the upcoming local elections in uh, this autumn, somewhere in October, November. So they want to position themselves better and to re-energize their platform so that, in a way, they could boast that they 
did something. And also last week, uh, of course, we didn't know that in February, but last week there was a rumor uh, started by Gavrilica him, uh, herself that uh, she might be the candidate of the ruling party for the mayor of Chisinau. So it could be that the, there is a calculation that she will be their candidate and they uh, removed her. Because in a way, that change of the government was really not of not a change of program, was not a change of ideology or, or, or anything. It was just like a change, uh, as in Karajal's famous uh, comedy, like they changed or they modified without changing anything. So it was like more of the same in terms of program, more of the same in terms of people. And uh, in, in many ways, I think for a lot of people, like the, the, there is no other logic to explain it rather than this kind of electoral calculation and some internal conflicts. Otherwise, like the, it, it's of course, there is this uh, convention that uh, the new government should be given at least three months or days before being criticized which for me it's really not doesn't make sense but already we can see that it's the same so it's more of the same so in more in of many, the same but yeah. I, I i would dare to say vitalia that in a sense it's worst and let me explain what is my perspective natalia gavrilica was educated in western universities she has a very good she had a very good education she seemed a very competent leader at least from the academic point of view and she was new she was never um in power before becoming prime minister and she was there as the so-called technocrat the person competent that is put there to solve the problems regardless of the ideology that in itself is an ideology because when you bring a technocrat they are never socialist i don't know if you noticed <laughs> you know they are always very right wing but they present themselves as some sort of a very uh, uh, the high priest of the intelligentsia that comes from the academia to solve the problems regardless of ideology. And so it happens that the measures and the ideas and the strategies are right-wing. Like, this is, you know, <laughs> so this is, and they make it seem like an accident or they make it seem like this is the rational thing to do. I think it's it would be an oxymoron to say like, technocratic socialist because the way the <laughs> technocrat is being constructed is to be right-wing always so that would be an oxymoron the, the the socialist would be ideologists or like yes 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 socialism is ideological right-wing is neutral is rational is the right thing to do <laughs> and of course there cannot be a, te a socialist technocrat. But she was brought there. And I would give her the credit of being an honest person, really trying to, to implement measures and ideas and regulations in accordance to her sincere beliefs. And why do I say that Dorin Rechan, the person that replaced her, is somehow worse? Because on top of everything else, on top of the right-wing ideas, on top of the right-wing regulations and, and perspectives and uh, obedience toward Western powers, he's also been, he was also involved in various scandals in Moldova. I mean, at least Natalia Gavrilica 
you could say she was honest in a sense that she was not involved in all sorts of shady businesses. She was not, for instance, like Dorin Rechan, the Ministry of Interior, while the biggest theft in recent history in Moldova took place, isn't it? So that how should do have you been a huge. <laughs> so that should please. have been a huge stain on his CV, CV, but on his resume. But somehow it uh, it gets him credit. And uh, yeah, I would agree with you. But that also I would comment or I would speculate that uh, the removal of Gavlitz and uh, her replacement with Rechan also signals a change in the um, role of the. Of PAS, this is the acronym for, for for the ruling party in Moldova, and let's it like to keep it shorter. Uh, so it's the change of the status of PAS from an opposition party to a kind of a ruling party. And in a way, yeah, you're right. Natalia Gavrilica seemed honest. Uh, she was part of the group of uh, the so-called idealists because this is how they were bragging about this themselves. Wamini Bunian Romanian, like the good people, and they were trying to, to construct. That's also very interesting. It was not citizens and people, but it was like good people against bad peoples, bad people, thieves, and so no on. No politics, so forth. but a lot of morals. No politics, yeah, but yeah, morals. Yeah. And they were trying to bring uh, this discourse about a moral revolution, even that, like, look, we are here. It's not only new politicians, not only new faces, but in a way, new people with different type of uh, ethics and morals. Of course, once they reached power, they immediately they immediately switched to the old tricks of uh, politicianism. So in this way, uh, Rechan was uh, more skilled in that. And this is why he is, in a way, more adapted to this game, because he's been practicing it for since forever, since at least 15 years. He was doing business, he was doing politics, politics and business and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. And I think also Natalia Gavrilica fell, again, I don't want to say that she's a victim, but I know in many ways, uh, she was totally unadapted to this type of politics. She made some huge uh, errors, not in terms of policies, because the policies, it's not that they're deciding. It's like the same kind of handouts being given by uh, by IMF and World Bank, and uh, they're trying to, to implement them. But many, like she did several mistakes in terms of communication. She was just caught on camera saying stupid things, and that kind of uh, was problematic because... What, what stupid things? I, I missed that. No, what, she's, what stupid thing so for did example, she, say? she said at one point that the cause of inflation is that people think too much about inflation and because they think there is infl there will be inflation, the infl like there will really be inflation, which like you could look in the uh, economic textbooks and you could say... <laughs> so it's uh, like in, in, the, yeah, in, yeah, in our yeah. heads. There is in, in the economics textbooks, there is this chapter about inflation. And yes, it includes that uh, people's expectation can play a role in like the rise of inflation. But then the National Bank doesn't measure that or like it's like really complicated. And she said... And uh, that that was really like spread like wildfire. Like you are to blame for to be blamed. You citizens are to be blamed for the inflation because you think too much of it. And she said several <laughs> other things like this. And it was um, and it was 
problematic for her as a public image, regardless of the fact, was she honest or not? So I think that, and after that, they changed totally the approach of communication. Now the new prime minister doesn't communicate directly with uh, with the citizens. There is, um, how to put it, there is a speech person, like a spokesperson, and that person usually hosts various uh, events and um, conferences after the meetings of the government. So they've tried to control the public communication. And I think also <clears throat> Natalia Gavrilic, in a way, took hard the effects of the uh, rise of inflation. Moldova inflation was huge. It was like even larger than, again, bigger than in Ukraine, which is in a, in, in a war and like really like uh, but is this due to the fact that Maya Sandu said they would not take um, gas from the Russians? What made it so difficult for Moldova? Were there also uh, the geopolitical context, the hardline ideological stance of Maya Sandu? What, what was the, the main cause? I'm not an economist. Uh, I can only speculate. We, with the gas, we really, in the in in a way, we we kind of used the Russian gas <laughs> that came via intermediaries, but we still and we're still now using it. So so much for the bragging about that we are independent. Oh, so it was rhetoric. Ah, oh, we are independent. We yes. are buying gas, and also, of course, in let me just I mean the quick, you know, in a sideway that uh, uh, you know. They say that they are not buying gas from authoritarian regimes, and then they discuss with Saudi Arabia, Azerbaijan, and other consolidated democracies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. But now that we agree <laughs> that the main enemy is Russia, will not use Russian gas. They say, but we're still using it, and and it's like a, a public secret. But it's uh, the way the, the the official discourse kind of uh, tries to present. Uh, an alternative reality that uh, that doesn't exist. So, to 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 go back to the inflation, uh, it's uh, it's many things probably. I'm not, as I said, I'm not an economist myself. So, but it was like poor um, poor harvest. Uh, also, the influx of uh, refugees, the rise, the rise of uh, electricity, and associated to that, all the products and goods that are being produced uh, with using electricity. Uh, so, um, all this kind of uh, combined together to to present a very bleak and uh, dark uh, dark picture. And, and now you have this solution with this guy Dorin Rechan. To me, it's simply infuriating. I mean, what's going on in Moldova? I mean, you bring now as the figure of the savior, the guy that was Ministry of Interior. So he was supposed to watch and to carefully prevent the biggest theft that took place in recent history of Moldova, the stealing of one billion euros, which for a country as small as Moldova, I mean, it took you back 10, if not 15 years yeah, in destroyed the country. So how do you bring this catastrophe? Because he's a bomb, isn't it? How do you bring such a ca catastrophic person to become your prime minister and present him like some sort of hero? 
Well, we were heading already for the medieval years, for the Middle Ages, so he can just accelerate the process. He'll not uh, overturn it. We're joking now here that we need anthropologists and uh, social sociologists with expertise in Middle Ages in order to understand what's happening in the country or what will happen in the country. Uh, like, I was puzzled as you, as you are, and I'm still puzzled. The only rational, like there are several kind of rationally rational explanations. One of them is like um, the fact that uh, now with the prime minister, and like it's not only Dorian Rechan, Maya Sandu was also part of the governments in which these things have happened. She was Minister of Education, but she was part of the government. She didn't resign, for example, if like it's about morality. She didn't resign when she found out that the government that she was part of was involved in this theft that was basically politicians and uh, financial elites robbing the the country. That was like, let's put it, it's not just a theft. It's not that somebody came during the night and took this huge amount of money from the public budget. It was like a process through which uh, some rich people, uh, through some ministers controlled by them, voted that some money from the banks will be borrowed to some shadow companies and uh, those companies never returned them. And they were well connected to, to some very concrete and specific people and my son was part of that, she didn't resign. So in a way she's also part of that past. And what they're doing now is also reinventing and rewriting history and it, it like what you are saying makes sense only when we take into account this rewriting of history where everybody like Maya Sandu for example hold uh, held this morning a press conference when she announced that and she announced that the airport is coming back in the hands of the state and that's a victory for the justice and all the guilty people involved and that will be punished mm. and like that how this happened it happened like how the so-called i don't know uh, stealing of the airport and returning happened the stealing happened during a meeting of the government where like Dorin Rechan as the minister of interior and Maya Sandu's minister of education voted for the airport to be concessioned to a shadow company to some offshore connected to Ilan Shore and now the now same this problem Ilan Shore because because just when uh, Natalia Gavrilita was resigning and Dorin Reciano was replacing her, Maya Sandu held a very, very weird press conference saying that the secret services in Moldova, apparently held by the Ukrainian secret services, managed to prevent a coup that was organized by the shore uh, group what what can you explain this i would like but i don't have and unfortunately i don't have more information than you do and it's part of the problem it's like we never we never really were offered no but details. what is this shore uh, shore group uh, ilan shore because you mentioned this ilan shore ah, apparently back in the day he was okay to be given the airport but now yes. he's organizing coups against the, the state. So yeah, back back in the back in time, he was a really close ally of uh, the party, Liberal Democratic Party, uh, where both Maya Sandu, 
my son was a member, Dorin Lechan was a member also, so they were like really allies and friends and whatever, and partners. And uh, um, meanwhile, Ilan Shor has switched some allegiances. He became friends with Plahutniuk and turned down Filat and put basically Filat in prison. And uh, in 2019, he escaped to Israel with Plahutniuk, and now Ilan Shor is in Israel. And there are there is like uh, a wave of protests started to starting they started to be organized since uh, September October and there are people that come and uh, do very peaceful protests they come yell write some messages they try to occupy some streets but they were kind of moved by the police and uh, and that's it so from time to time they would uh, circle around the parliament uh, around the government they do some small uh, marches but it was nothing of the sort of like what you see around in france or in israel or in other countries so and and because of that it was really unexpected and uh, like it lacked credibility and everybody was like wondering what kind of plot did they discover we like we 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 think that it's uh it was designed as a political move to give maya sandu a pretext to change the government like the information from from the ukrainian secret services which was not which was never clarified then uh, uh the so-called confirmation by the moldovan authorities yes we have received the information and yes this is true uh they conducted several waves of arrests and that's like the, the case is really complicated because it's not only about Ilan Shore. It's about also um, groups of people that they say that the Moldovan authorities say that they're connected to Ilan Shore. Uh, the Moldovan police has conducted several raids. They have uh, taken some, they said, dirty money that would be used to finance the protests but nobody there was there is no um, action in the court for that nobody's answering for anything it's just like they presented that on the television there was even a scandal that part of the money disappeared and then they <laughs> they appeared back <clears throat> so oh and, this um, is so you know like <laughs> romania yeah, and moldova this is so like our countries yeah in december the 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 government issued a list of people <clears throat> that uh, are to be monitored closely because of their connections with Ilan Shore. That, that it's also very unclear, and that uh, also a thing should be said to put this in context that Moldova is being ruled by is in state of emergency since February twenty uh, two thousand twenty two. So basically. It's state of emergency. The government can give and can put any rules and any decrees. And basically, it's a country rule, ruled by a de by decree. And one of these decrees uh, stated that these persons should be monitored carefully. Their bank transactions should be also monitored closely. And nobody understands what this exactly means. Does it mean that you're sanctioning some people, like some Moldovan citizens? If yes, on what grounds? Because you cannot just publish uh, a list of people and companies and say these people should have their transactions um, restricted. Like you should give a reason, you should provide mm -hmm. a, a fair mm -hmm. trial or a fair process so that uh, it's clear for everyone that this is not an, arbit not an arbitrary. So, 
that didn't happen also. And um, the, to, the, the last thing to add into this kind of mixture is the fact that there is already for several years a process against Ilan Shor and it's still moving nowhere. So on the one hand, like there is... He's very dangerous. Yeah, he's the very the dangerous. Yeah, very dangerous, but doesn't they don't do anything about him. But they, he's very useful to, to be used as an excuse. And we think that he was used as an excuse. And um, it was, again, caricatural. And uh, maybe until the moment that all the evidence is presented, I will still consider that this was fake and it was uh, just like, really, it's comedy. They... Um, Moldo, uh, I think one of the uh, Sheriff Tiraspol was supposed to play against some Serbian team and they uh, prevented several um, football fa fans from Serbia, like 10 people. And they're saying that this is, <laughs> they were sh showing that they forbid these people to enter Moldova. And they said that like they might be the, the participants in this plot. And they also uh, denied access to several Hungarian uh, I think from a volleyball team or something like that, and so it was really crazy. You have like you 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 create this um, uh, subject of a plot of cosmic proportions, proportions, and then you don't give any details except. Um, and, and then you don't you ban from entering the country some people yeah, so, related to some sports events. Yeah, which is and that's in a way possible only if you take into account that Moldova in the last like after the beginning of the COVID pandemic has slowly moved to to be a very authoritarian state, like very democratic if you believe the politicians, but very authoritarian if if you go into the details. Like we've been ruled since two thousand twenty by we've been in a state of emergency and there are right now several uh states of emergencies in parallel there is a state of emergency in justice in the energy sector in the economy and it's like the general state of emergency we even don't know what this means really it's just like they are adding 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 and we're joking that at one point we'll have to have a state of emergency for the states for all the states of emergency <laughs> Wow. Yes, and this is very unfortunate because you see, Vitalia, whenever you have a leader that the Western powers do not agree with, he's portrayed like this authoritarian, dangerous uh, personality that is going to destroy its country and we have to do something to stop him. But whenever there's a politician that has the support of the Western powers, he can or she can do pretty much as they like in their country and no matter how authoritarian their measurements get, you know, there is this support that they are democratic, they are the new hope, they are doing this to save Moldova. And we had the number of saviors. I remember the, the first time we discussed Maya Sandu back in 2019 on this show, you just said that we had, you had in Moldova, and I can say for ourselves in Romania that we have savior after savior. And, you know, it's right-wing politics, no social service, no support for the poor, no way of um, having a different vision in terms of economics, but the same program with different flavors. And what differs is... How much support do they get from the European Union, the United States, Western powers, isn't it?
I would fully agree with you. And um, uh, as I know that you're uh, uh, an academic, I would like challenge also the, the idea that we're using authoritarianism and we should not probably forget that is not a neutral term. What we see is like it's being deployed in various contexts with various meanings and uh, it's not just a descriptive term. So, and, and we can see like what you've said, it's like a very nice and perfect illustration of this, how some practices uh, are not authoritarian or bad in themselves. They are authoritarian and bad only in certain contexts. The same practices in other contexts are good. So it's, it means that some violence against the citizens is being sometimes justified and legitimized when it's for some causes and uh, it's not justified when it's for another causes. And uh, I think the other th another thing that you mentioned just like passing by, but I think it's very important is this external support. As it happens, uh, all these very successful Moldovan governments, they have more support outside than inside the country. And for these kind of uh, governments, uh, this, uh, the fact that they're uh, being invited, received by various heads of the governments from abroad, they're receiving various prizes, both imaginary, important and unimportant. They're being kind of projecting this image that they're like really very being being taken seriously. In a way, it's the way the the the, uh, the governments kind of function here. They function mostly as a government supported by some external factors than inside factors. So it's, in a way, it's a very complicated story uh, because Moldova has really been, the, been a dependent country. Like it gets annually some type of money called budgetary support, which means like EU and US and other donors just give Moldova money to pay its pensions. So it's very difficult to expect from a country like this some kind of autonomy and independence or like some ambitions to play. And in a way, their, uh, their, their abilities to change things are all very limited, or at least I think that they're limited not only by the actual resources, but also by their imaginary. The funny, in a way, interesting situation is, but, is that they're it's the same, and that's the continuity that you are talking, is the same profile of persons, like saviors, presenting the same type of policies to be implemented. And at the same time, paradoxically, all the time or always, they're presenting as a new person. There is a new fresh face. There is like, they're doing the same. It's mostly the same people doing the same things. Um, but sometimes they're presenting like this is the new face of the old thing. And uh, it's easy and it's easier for, for, for this government, for example, because they control the media mostly. And that's mm -hmm. very important. They control the narratives. And the, this war really doesn't help to, 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 to criticize. Yes, them. yes, about that. Let us discuss because Moldova is a, a really difficult situation given the fact that you have there that piece of land that is Transnistria that has some old Soviet military equipment that are, very, I, I think they're there mostly Russian citizens, Russian people living there. And... To their credit, the Moldovan politicians never said, oh, these are people that are against us, and they never 
pushed the pedal of xenophobia and hatred towards Transnistria too much. I haven't heard in the media, you know, declarations that we have to conquer them, we have to destroy them, they are their enemies. They haven't done this type of divisive and polarizing, you know, um, strategies and discourses. They haven't taken that path, regardless of their political, uh, you know, their political strategy and ideology. So tell me, how is it that they kept their mouth shut with regards to Transnistria? Is it the fact that probably the Moldovan army would be in a very difficult position if the Transnistrians would decide to attack? Or what was it that dominated well, the relation? With Transnistria, the, the issue is that before the war, it was almost non-existent in the imaginary of Moldovans. It's like nobody would really care about it. It's, mm-hmm. it's a region that somehow resists, that somehow exists there. Uh, all the connections between the people, like most of the connections have been severed and cut somewhere in the 90s. And uh, with the gradual reorientation of migration flows, economic flows to the West, where Moldovans mostly go to work, like Transnistria totally disappeared. And it, I would even argue that uh, uh, before the war, like any politician that would try to, 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 to kind of argue for like, let's pay more attention to Transnistria or to Transnistrian issue would not be taken seriously because Moldovans did not really care about that. It's there, we're separated by a river, they somehow manage by, we're somehow managing by. And that's not only connected to, that's connected also to other factors. For example, the massive depoliticization of, of the Moldovan citizenry. Like a lot of Moldovans just live outside the state. They, all their financial flows and personal relations and interaction authorities like are non-existent. People living in the villages, they're receiving money from their relatives that are working abroad and the only their only connection to the Moldovan state is like uh, every four years they go to elections and uh, they take their entertainment from YouTube, Facebook or other channels and uh, some of them might know who is the president currently, some of them might, most of them might not know. So it's really, in a way, Transnistria played a really marginal role and in many ways uh, when the war started and uh, everyone started to pay attention to Transnistria, that was an unfortunate moment for the Moldovan politicians because they really don't know what to do with it. They didn't have any vision for it. It was like, it was passed, as, as we say in, in Romania, like as a hot potato from one government to another. Like, we'll try to solve it, but mostly keeping the things as they are and we'll try to, to, to kind of do that for four years and let's maybe ne- next government or next governments deal with it seriously because there is really no vision on how to reintegrate. If if there is this talk that at one point Transnistria should be reintegrated within a common state with Moldova, there is really no talk about that. There is really no vision. There is really no program. There is really no policies being done. If you want to build, of course, for example, this state should be in a way not the center 
centralist Moldovan state, it should be given some autonomy. And everybody is afraid of using the word federalization or autonomy for Transnistria, and so on and so forth. So it was like very unfortunate for the Moldovan politicians that suddenly they have not only to to pay attention to it, but to be okay, able that to behave as if they want to solve it, as if they have a vision, as if they have a program, which was not. So in a way, I think they continue to do what they did before, just in a way pretend it doesn't exist, keep the business relationships with, with the region there, because Transnistria was very important in certain kind of aspects. Uh, there is a huge metallurgical complex there. Moldova depends on the electrical energy on that. So they found the balance. I think uh, that was helped also. I don't know if it was designed, but uh, Transnistria really did not behave as you would expect as a Russian enclave, just wanting to, to be liberated, uh, as they say, by the Russians. From the first day trans of the war, Transnistrians have behaved themselves as, as if they like all read uh, Mahatma Gandhi and became pacifists and uh, were... <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, it's like really. Uh, they were... They probably understood that uh, if the outcome of the war is in a way, like, for example, unfavorable to Russia, they'll have to lose everything. So they pretend they preferred to to, to really be neutral. And Moldovan authorities... But I why do you say that now a, a possible scenario from the worst case scenarios would be that the, the Russians would take Odessa and then that they would reunite with Transnistria. And you say that probably people there form the way of life that will be suddenly disturbed because... They found a way of informally deal with the Moldovans. There is peace. The business is going. Everybody's happy. And all of that will be lost the minute this uh, worst case scenario happens that Russians take uh, Odessa and then they go to Transnistria. What I'm, what I'm mentioning is like the official position of authorities and the official discourses. So unfortunately, I'm not living in Transnistria. So I'm, I cannot, for example, tell if this official discourse is doubled in some way by by a discourse that... But, but who's yeah, ruling Transnistria? Who, who are the main uh, politicians with, there? Whether, well, there is... They have a formal uh, assembly of institutions, a formal set of institutions that kind of resemble... that uh, is the same in many ways as Moldovan. So they have unofficial... But, but still they have statehood. So there is a, a president, there is a parliament, there is a government. And from all these people, from the most important people in Transnistria, you could hear that um, they, they, they uh, kind of uh, asked and called people to, to, to be quiet, to, to not, uh, uh, to, to not uh, fall prey to various provocations. And uh, there were moments when various incidents happened, and even then they said, like, yeah, uh, we'll keep quiet. And in, again, we don't know what are the really... Because you, you, you get... Uh, in Mold even in Moldova, which is like supposedly Transnistria is part of Moldova, you get this distorted image of Transnistria and discussions that are happening in Transnistria. Reading Mold like Moldovan media in this sense is useless. You have to listen to uh, to, to to Transnistrians to to look where they are discussing on Telegram or on Facebook or on other websites of their uh, news and media. 
but what you get is that basically the region was trying to to kind of keep itself out of this with of course doesn't doesn't tell you anything about like maybe ordinary people there have been even some surveys and most of the people wanted peace but you don't know really because surveys are also not to be trusted in Moldova and so on and so forth so in many ways to to, to kind of bring the whole context Moldovan authorities were really happy with this at least in the beginning because this kind of let's keep quiet was uh, in line with uh, the line of the Moldovan authorities like uh, let's keep neutral Moldova is a neutral country we will provide humanitarian assist assistance to refugees and so on and so forth and that went well there were some marginal voices that were saying that Moldova maybe should abandon its neutrality because neutrality doesn't uh, protect it from, from, from an invasion and so on and so forth and should join NATO or should do something else. But those were marginal discourses. And gradually, I think, with the at least what is being perceived as a turn of the table and the war going in favor of Ukraine, we could see a gradual change in this attitude. Already, not people from marginal areas of political discourse like uh, the pro-Romanian unionists or some uh, other kind of peripheral political figures, but we could see also people from, from like deputies from the ruling coalition, say MPs, saying really out loud that Moldova should revise its neutrality and maybe maybe it's time to, to get rid of the bandits in Tiraspol and so on. And there were several moments when um, there was pressure from, in the beginning it was coming mostly from, from Ukrainian authorities and there have been numerous instances where Ukrainian politicians and not Zelensky but people around Zelensky like mm -hmm. Aristovich and others were saying that um, Moldova only has to ask and Ukraine will help her deal with, uh, with Transnistria. At one point, also, the Russian Ministry of uh, Defense started to spread messages. It was February this year that Ukrainians are preparing for a war and Ukrainians were denying it and so on and so forth. And Moldovan authorities were just like keeping quiet and everybody was anxious. Like around you, uh, people are discussing and arguing for a military solution and you're keeping quiet. And in the end, they... Um, they stated that the only solution to this conflict would be a peaceful solution. We don't know if they said that because they really believe. There is like a lot of rumors now. Moldova is really, in many ways, it's a dream come true because uh, a lot of politicians in Moldova uh, were arguing all the time as also in Romania they were doing, that Moldova is the center of the universe and all local struggles are reflecting in a way like other struggles, struggles of planetary importance and everything is being decided here. And just like the parliamentary elections in Moldova also import, are so important that, I don't know, the life in the universe depends on it. And now in many ways, uh, their dream came true that Moldova really has to face and is facing some harsh decisions, some decisions with like long political implications. And we could see that politicians are, Moldovan politicians are not ready for it. And it's a lot of rumors now about the possible uh, attack on Transnistria coordinated between Moldova and Ukraine. The problem 
of course, I'm of course totally against. I'm I'm pacifist and I'm long-term pacifist and I'm absolute pacifist, even within this context. But there is like a lot of rumors about Moldova being uh, doing in collaboration with Ukraine an attack on Transnistria, and uh, Moldovan authorities having agreements with Romanian authorities and Europeans and Americans for that, and kind of having permission. And uh, we're in a very weird and, and a very kind of, uh, how to put it, like uh, anxious moment, because we really don't know. And to go back to, to, to kind of to the dependence of our politicians on foreign agendas and on external forces that support them, these external forces might require from them some actions that go against their will, against the public interest, against the will of uh, citizens of Moldova. I think for even for the, maybe for most of the Transnistrians, as for most of the Moldovans, uh, any peaceful solution, even that keeping it frozen for an indefinite period is really better than um, than yes, because in, in countries <clears throat> so poor like our own, I mean, a war would have devastating effects. I mean, in any country, no matter how rich, it has devastating effects. But when you add such levels of poverty to the mix, and on top of the war, you have these levels of poverty, it's just the final blow. I mean, it will be catastrophic if something like this would, would happen, because I can only imagine that given the fact that so many Moldovans have relatives abroad, they would just flee the country and you'll see even, you know, maybe you would see the country depopulated in matters mm -hmm. of months. And then what do you do? I mean, you have no military, no strong military force there, and your land will just become a place for other big powers to show their strength and to use that as a, you know, place where they can fight. I mean, and that would basically destroy everything. And it will be horrendous even for Transnistria because they are even poorer from what I understand than Moldovans. So... It would yeah, be like. I, I hope that I like what you said is basically the the reasonable argument, and I think I hope that is, this reasonable argument is in the minds also of all Moldovan politicians. But at the same time, I think there is kind of long tendency of Moldovan politicians to 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 kind of um, I don't know how to put it, but like uh, to overcome this image as like Moldova being a weak country, so like a military. There was always this kind of interplay or like play with on... Um, Moldova is poor but and neutral and, and really with an army that is not important, but also at the same time in the imaginary of Moldovan politicians, uh, most of them being raised in militaristic cultures like in the Soviet Union, they still want to brag about like armies and tanks and the planes and like Dodon, there was like the previous president in the beginning of the pandemic, he took the army and uh, like 
took the tanks and put them in the streets of the, of Chisinau so that to brag that he's the commander in chief and we're joking like what do you want to shoot the virus with the weapons or what so this is one thing the kind of um, the fascination of uh, of politicians with the militaries with the weapons and so and there have been a lot of there has been a lot of talk about Moldova buying some weaponry. That's like really a real fact. It's not just like they're fascinating. Uh, on, and like in a way, they manifest their fascination by looking online on weaponry or <laughs> YouTube videos. No, they really want to buy. Uh, Moldova wants to buy some anti-defense, anti-missiles kind of uh, system. Also, there is an increasing militarization of the discourse in the country. And I think it's related also to the fact that uh, the so-called neutrality of the country was not really taken seriously and was not really reflected upon neither prior to the war nor during the war. For me, for example, this neutrality offers a potent and a really a massive kind of leverage of Moldova to try to be mediator in this conflict, to try to, to, to kind of... Uh, uh, be the the host of some peace talks, to be the proponent and the driver of these peace talks. For most of the Moldovan politicians from all the specters, like neutrality is at best the um, the kind of the subterfuge of the weak. It's something like they understand it as uh, like let's see who wins and then we'll make peace oh, with, the, uh -huh. vict with the victor. And that's kind of really not, uh, or they see it as a um, as a barrier, like for for especially for some very right wing pro Romanian politicians. Uh, right now, the uh, the the only solution would be Moldova to somehow join Romania and somehow join NATO. And in their fantasies, like that means like where you are one hundred percent protected uh, from from any military action and i think that also contributes that in a way adds to to to, to local anxieties that in a way uh yeah the reasonable solution is to avoid the war at all costs and to argue for peace but on the other hand there are some factors that kind of show that in some circumstances uh, uh a military solution might be preferred and and these circumstances might not be decided by, by the Moldovan politicians. Yeah, as usual, you know, when you take money and you enter an alliance, there will be a time when your partners will say, well, we supported you, now you have to do this. And that what they require may go very well against the interests of the Moldovan citizens and it would, it would imply going to war, which, as I said, for Moldova, I think it will be the end of it. I mean, I'm very, very pessimistic as to how would Moldova survive such a terrible blow, but you never know. But at least it will be devastating. It will be... You know, for, for a lot of these people, like the disappearance of the country was actually the, a new beginning. Like there is a lot of Moldovan unionists or like pro-Romanian, Moldovan pro-Romanian unionists that live under the slogan as worse, like uh, if the situation is worse for the country, this is better for the unification because that's provi that provides an additional argument for Moldova to join Romania because it has failed as a state. So not in all quarters, this is being seen as a real catastrophe. But I was in a way joking. Uh, I totally agree with what you're saying. Like Moldova is already, I, I, I think it's like if you need the textbook definition of a very 
problematic state that is incapable of ruling itself and it's like falling into bigger dependence uh, on other actors at the same time having some prerequisites for 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 autonomy at least if not independence that would be moldova and like future generations probably will ask how how we end uh, ended up here and uh, there is no no easy answer for for that yes yes definitely so thank you so much vitalia we've been speaking for talking for almost an hour i uh, hope the viewers got um a deeper sense of what ha what is happening in uh, in Moldova right now from a critical perspective as always uh, to the viewers if you liked what you saw please go to our patreon page patreon.com slash the barricade we have a small community of donors to whom we are very thankful uh, and to the extent you feel you can afford it please make a donation for us because this is the way we support ourselves thank you so much Vitalia to the viewers stay healthy keep fighting and see you all in the next segment of our show thank you thank you for inviting me and having